You're listening to The Whole Church Podcast. Our efforts to educate and unite the church are made possible thanks to our sponsors on Patreon. Please consider joining them for $3 a month, where you can get an extra special 60% discount on our upcoming convention, the Every Tribe Denomination and Tongue Convention, being held in Charlotte, North Carolina, May 11th through 13th. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7-9, through 9, and then 11 in the Christian Standard Bible reads, Now as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. I am not saying this as a command. Rather, by means of the diligence of others, I am testing the genuineness of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Skipping to verse 11. At the present time, your surplus is available for, the, for their need, so that their abundance may in turn meet your need, in order that there may be equality. So here, St. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. He's encouraging them to care for their poor and needy. Um, really, what Paul's doing is advocating that the church more fully share its wealth. Um, Dr. Thomas J. Ord, how can acts of grace like this help us in our relation to God and to one another? Profound question. I think that helping those in need is at the core of what it means to live a life of love. Mm -hmm. But what makes my perspective quite different from most that your listeners will be uh, familiar with is that I think not only creatures have needs, but God has needs as well. In other words, what it means to love like God loves is to promote the well-being of others, including God. Hmm. I am, I'm going to drive our listeners crazy <laughs> and come back to that later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's a teaser. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome to the Whole Church Podcast, your favorite church unity podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Joshua Knoll. Um, unfortunately, much to your chagrin, I am not joined by the greatest co-host of all time, TJ Tiberius Juan Blackwell. Um, and I have a cold, you might be able to tell. But to make up for all of that, we brought in the the greatest relational and open theologian ever. Uh, maybe the father of it? I don't know. Um, God's sidekick, uh, Dr. Thomas J. Ord. Welcome to the show. God's sidekick. I like that. Yeah. I feel like that be on your business card, you know? <laughs> I at least want to be a friend of God. A sidekick sounds, you know, I don't know, really up there. I mean, you know, Batman and Robin, they're definitely friends. <laughs> oh, man. Well, guys, today is a special treat, especially for a lot of our listeners who have only really heard some of the more conservative theology, that kind of stuff. If you've never heard discussed open and relational theology we discussed my first experience with it earlier last year, later last year, sometime last year on the show before, but we haven't sat down and discussed with someone who is a, uh, w would you consider it process theology, Dr. Ward? I think of myself as open and relational and process theology is one subset underneath that broad umbrella. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. So it is far different than what a lot of people are used to. I uh, will challenge all of our listeners that um, the Bible pretty clearly says uh, have unity with all of Jesus's followers. And that's pretty much defined as uh, those who believe and, you know, know that they have messed up in some way. So um, unfortunately, it doesn't say a lot of the things that some people would like it to say. There's a lot of room for unity. And we are going to explore what that looks like today as we discuss open and relational theology, the book, the theology as well as another book, um, God Can't. That one's already out, right? Yes. And then we're going to discuss yet another one that's coming up, but this is another teaser. You'll just have to hang in there for that one. <laughs> but before we get into it, you guys know we have a convention coming up, the Every Tribe Denomination and Tongue Convention. Um, make sure you use the code WHOLE, W-H-O-L-E, for 40% off at the checkout. We'll have the link down below. Check it out. We're going to have some comedy. We're going to have some uh, breakout groups. It's going to be a lot of fun. There will be a multilingual worship service that's, I think we have like 12 different languages represented at this thing. It's going to be a lot of fun. So make sure you get there. And if you want even more off, 
our patrons get 60% off, as well as some free merch every now and then, so maybe consider joining the Patreon. Now, Dr. Ord, I have a favorite form of unity. Um, it's a spiritual practice that I get really serious about, um, and that's silliness. All right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we always start, because, you know, it's just impossible to not to argue to be in strife when you're being this goofy. So we start off with a silly question, and I'll answer first, give you a little bit of extra time to think about it. Okay. If you could see through the eyes of any fish, which fish would you choose? And, you know, sharks, whales, whatever counts. Um, I'm kind of trying to stall because I had a really good answer to this before, and I can't well, I've got an answer. what it is. I okay. can give you something, yeah. Okay, all I'm right. I'm coming to you from Idaho, which is a great outdoor state, and we've got some of the best fly fishing, well, just any kind of fishing, uh, uh, available in our state. So I would be a rainbow trout up in the mountains Ooh. of Idaho, swimming through the, the rushing rivers and seeing the natural beauty around me. Okay, okay. See, that could be fun. If I'm seeing through their eyes, I, I think I got one. I'm going to go with the sea bass because they lie on the bottom and they look up. So I can see all of the things in the ocean that go above them that's going on and just kind of observe the ocean light. So Very good. I, I think I'm going to stick with that. Uh, if TJ was here, he was a biology major. I'm sure he would have a much cooler answer for you guys of something we never heard of and would make you scratch your head. So we'll ask him next time. <laughs> um, so I mentioned it earlier. Your theology is a little bit different than what a lot of our audience is familiar with. Um, as such, I think we should probably start with some of the some of the basics. To you, what would you say, or who would you say God is? Yeah, that's obviously a huge subject, but I want to be clear, precise, and I want to tick off the things that are most um, unfamiliar, perhaps, to your listeners. So I mm. believe there actually is an omnipresent God, a spirit an incorporeal spirit, a bodiless God present to all of creation and the entire universe. This mm -hmm. God has always existed and will always exist. This God exerts influence upon everything that exists, but never, ever controls anything from the most complex to the least complex. This God is not omnipotent. If omnipotence means controlling others or having all the power or something like that. The God I believe in loves absolutely everyone and everything. And that means not only contributing to the good of others, but also receiving from them, being influenced by them. And that's different from most theologies. Mm -hmm. This God is an experiential being whose experiences change moment by moment in giving and receiving relationship. And I'll conclude my, my short little info by saying <laughs> this God knows absolutely everything that's knowable, but the future does not yet exist. And so God does not know uh, the future because it's not there to be known. Yeah. And there's already a ton of people waving their fist at their phone. <laughs> right. and, and what's going on here? What in the um, world? <laughs> so, so there's a couple things I want to, I want to go ahead and clarify with you and something I'm just curious about. Um, so, so first Mind you, I'm not asking this because I'm <laughs> this. This could come off as me being like, "Well, what is even like? Why are you doing?" Yeah, but that's all right. What is the purpose of a god who can't isn't in control? Basically, mm -hmm. what what is he just there? I mean, yeah, awesome question. God's purpose is to love us, to provide us a vision for living a good life, to seek beauty, truth, justice, well-being, etc. Uh, mm -hmm. God's purpose is not to control us or to even omnipotently control history to some predetermined, predestined end. Without God, we could not exist. We could mm -hmm. not know what love looks like. So we rely upon God. We're utterly dependent upon God moment <laughs> by moment. But God, in my view, never, ever controls. So in, in a way... If I'm thinking about it, how I relate to other humans, I think I, I rather have a dependable partner, for example, than a controlling partner. Yeah, is great. that sort of? Yeah, that's nice. Or you know, one of the most common analogies that biblical writers use for God is God as a parent. Now, now, what's a good parent? Is a good parent one who does nothing, who just watches from a distance, is an absentee father, you might say? 
Is a good parent the one who manipulates absolutely everything, controls, and the kid is basically a robot? Or does good parenthood mean influencing children toward the good without uh, controlling them or without abandoning them? Open relational theology thinks that influencing parent is the best overall model, not a controlling or an abandoning. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So there's something that, interestingly enough, um, another gentleman we've had on the show before who I would say is far more conservative, um, Frank Viola. I don't know if you've heard of him or not. I know of him, but I don't know him personally. Yeah. Yeah. One of his books, he writes, um, he writes about the Trinity and like God is relational. That is what God is. And it was really interesting reading yours seeing, okay, so these are two people who I would think are probably on different ends of, you know, if we're going to do a conservative liberal perspective, whatever you want to call it. And yet this one truth kind of seems to stick out pretty clearly even. Yes. Open and relational people think that God is essentially relational. Now, some affirm the Trinity, some don't. Uh, you don't have to believe in the Trinity to be open and relational. On the other hand, I would say most open and relational thinkers do affirm some form of the Trinity. So uh, we share in common this idea that God is not only influencing, not only giving, not only mm-hmm. affecting creation, but being affected by, being influenced by, receiving from others. Now, that's, that probably sounds to a bunch of your <laughs> listeners like, oh, that's really obvious. Like, especially those of you who read the Bible very much, it's pretty obvious that God <laughs> responds to creation. But they'll be surprised to find out that the major Christian theologians in history, Augustine, Aquinas, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and so many others, reject the idea that God is relational reject the idea that God is influenced by creatures. Open and relational folks align, or open and relational theology aligns far better with scripture on this point than classical theologies. Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting. It's kind of a bigger version of what some of the Calvinist Arminian arguments tend to be, where it's, is predestination a thing or is free will a thing? And I think this is even a step further back from that. Yeah. Yeah. And you're looking at parts of the Bible where, you know, uh, one side might look at parts where it says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and another side might look at it and say, okay, but here, 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 and here, God changed his mind. <laughs> yes, yeah. So what open and relational folks like me do is say, hey, we get to affirm both of those. Those ones that say God remains the same, unchanging, immutable, we believe them, but we think they refer to God's essence or God's nature. That's never going to change. It's eternally mm. the same. However, those passages that have God repenting, having a change of mind, well, those pertain to God's experience as the living Lord of history, as an experiential uh, being. And so we can affirm both of those and just say they're, they're pointing to different aspects of who God is. So a lot of the, I imagine, a lot of the pushback that this kind of theology gets is Probably more to do with, well, the Bible says this and the Bible's inerrant, so this has to be the case. So let's just get straight to the point of what is your view of Scripture, its authority, how to read it, etc.? Like, what do you do with the Bible? Yeah. First of all, let me say, you could be an open and relational thinker and believe the Bible is inerrant. Uh, I only know one person in my life who has that position, so it's very rare, hmm. but it's theoretically possible. I, however, do not think the Bible is inerrant, and I do that primarily on biblical witness <laughs> itself, and that's what most open and relational folks would think. If you're someone who's wrestling with that view and you want a good book to read, Gregory Boyd's got a recent book called Inspired Imperfection, I think is what it's called, in which he <laughs> points out the errors in Scripture. So for me personally, I look to the Bible as my primary but not only authority on issues related to God. I don't Mm -hmm. look to the Bible to give me my best science, my best history, et cetera. (laughs) Uh, If I want to ask, if I want to figure out some answer to fixing my computer, I don't look to the Bible. Um, Uh, You really got to be checking out those appendixes, man. (laughs) (laughs) But what might be unsettling for some of your listeners is I think that the Bible gives us mixed messages about God. In other words, it doesn't give us a coherent and consistent view of who God is. For instance, 
There are some really strong biblical passages that say God is a forgiving God, that we ought to be like God and turn the other cheek. And then there are passages in which God smites people, you know, (laughs) commands the Israelites to kill others, commit genocide, it seems. So there's there's tensions within Scripture itself. I think we ought to privilege those portions of Scripture, and I happen to think they're the majority, that point to a God of perfect love. And I think they're most clearly uh, revealed, instantiated, we might say, in Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, if we have a Christocentric lens, we can make better sense of God as loving than uh, if we take every single passage of Scripture as equal in value, because there are just some passages that portray God as unloving, at least as I see it. So the Bible is important to me. I don't think it's inerrant. I don't think it's totally consistent. But if I take a grand view, an overall view of Scripture, I not only think Scripture overall points to a God of love, I think it supports open and relational theology better than any alternative. Yeah, I... So usually I don't share my own views, but I think it might be helpful for this particular conversation. Okay, go for it. <laughs> I, um, I, I, I kind of sit in a really weird spots where I, I would say that I think of the Bible as more infallible than I would say inerrant. But I found the more that I talk to people and ask them questions, a lot of time when people say inerrant and I question them about certain things, I'm like, well, what about how this gospel says Jesus did it in this order and this gospel says a different order? I'm like, well, you know, it's inerrant, but that in the, you know, they explain the literature pretty much the same way I would. And I'm like, okay, so what you mean by inerrant is the same thing that I view the Bible as we're just mismatching the terms. Sometimes you'll have people who are like, no, both literally happened. I'm like, okay, well that, that doesn't check out. Yeah. But usually people attach themselves so much to the terms or avoiding a term that I feel like there's a lot of talking around one another in some of this. Um, I don't want to project onto you what I'm about to say, but it might sound like it. So let me say (laughs) that I'm not projecting. No problem. Most people I know who want the Bible to be inerrant or infallible want to have a resource they can trust beyond a shadow of the doubt. It becomes their basis for their claims about who God is and how humans ought to act. And they're worried that if that book has is infallible or I mean is fallible or has errors, then they no longer have a sure and certain foundation. My view is that we shouldn't look to the Bible like that. The Bible becomes a and perhaps even the primary resource, but not mm-hmm. the only. And it can have real mistakes in it. Not only mistakes about science, but mistakes about God. Now, I recognize that that makes people uncomfortable because, <laughs> yeah. you know, everybody wants yeah, to have a rock solid foundation. But at least in my uh, spiritual journey, that seems to make the most sense of the actual Bible we have. Yeah. Whereas I, I think my view is um, trying, trying, to, trying to word this well. It's hard to do. Yeah. Um, I believe that God had inspired the events that create that caused the Bible that we have for a reason. Um, And I think intentionally there are some things that seem like contradictions and things that will bring up the mysteries of the faith as my Orthodox brothers and sisters like to call it. And I, I like the intentionality of they're not being clear answers. Like I think the Bible, part of the Bible's point is not to give us clear answers. And I, I like that. You're going to like Greg Boyd's view then, prop, because that's, Ooh, that's fun. very similar to Greg's <laughs> view of things. Very fun. Yeah. I also, I make people mad because even though I would view scripture as primary source over tradition, I will grant that uh, scripture only exists because of tradition and in a way is an extension of tradition. So I'm like, ah, sure. uh, the Catholics aren't all wrong, guys. <laughs> they they yeah, kind of. You, you can't yeah. have scripture without tradition. In my way of thinking, they just blend together. Both of yeah. them could be wrong, however. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I would so. say, though, one of the downsides of your view that the Bible, that God intentionally either caused errors or allowed errors in the Bible, mm-hmm. is that if you also think the Bible is our primary resource or revelation of God's love necessary for salvation, then you've got a God who intentionally is confusing us or is intentionally Mm -hmm. uh, allowing a lack of clarity. 
And I'm much more attracted to a God who can't, can't make it crystal clear through some omnipotent act. That then matches better with, as I see it, with a God who's perfectly loving, who wants our salvation. Yeah, uh, that's a fair criticism. <laughs> I, um, I, you know, I would, I don't know, as someone who part of my experience is in wrestling with intellectual ideas, and that's where I feel closest to the divine. It's like, I don't, not that I'm blind to that error. It's just kind of, it's like, it doesn't affect me. So it's easy to overlook it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, no, I definitely I see where you're coming yeah. from though. Um, what, <laughs> just, just go a little bit further. Good. We talked about how you view God, how you view scripture. What else is there? What is open and relational theology? If you had to define it. If I had to define it, I would say it has two key ideas. We've already mentioned the one, which is the relational idea that God is giving and receiving, that God is passable to use the classic language. In other words, God has emotions in response to creation, and God is really compassionate toward creatures and mm -hmm. angry when we hurt each other. So we can take the Bible pretty literally on those divine emotion issues. But the second one, I've only kind of hinted at. That's the openness part of it. I hinted at it when I said God knows everything that's knowable, but the future mm -hmm. is not yet knowable. And what the fundamental claim there is, is actually something that I think matches Scripture better than the alternative. It's the idea that God moves through time like we do, that the mm -hmm. past is really the past for us and for God, and the present is the present for God and us, and the future doesn't yet exist. It's kind of a realm of possibilities for us and for God. Now, I think reading the Bible makes a lot more sense mm -hmm. with this God of moving through history than the God of classical theology, who's timeless, who kind of sits outside of history and sees everything past to, to beginning. But those two ideas, God is relational and the future is open, those are kind of the big ideas under which sit a bunch of you know, other things like human freedom and love and these kinds of issues. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. A lot of your does God control things, does predestination, a lot of the stuff relies on this idea that God has to be above time, um, which uh, to me, not saying it's right or wrong, but I'm saying it, it does seem as though there is a lot of assumptions that go into that belief based off of parts of the yes. Bible that say stuff about how God relates to time differently. And maybe that's the case. Maybe he relates differently, but it doesn't say he's not impacted at all by it. Like that's not. Yeah. In the Bible, oh, that is assumed. Of, yeah, there's tons of assumptions on all sides here. So when yeah. someone says to me, boy, you're making a lot of assumptions about God moving through time, I say, yeah, well, everybody make assumptions about <laughs> God in time. It's just that most people have assumed God is not in time. And I'm just putting my assumptions right on the table, crystal clear. This is what I think makes the most sense. I'm not sure with a 100% certainty this is right. <laughs> But yeah. I think it matches the biblical witness better than the God outside of time. Yeah. My my favorite, what I'm sure a lot of people would consider heresy. <laughs> Once in a um in one of my theology classes, they were talking about what the Bible does not say about God in time, which is fascinating. We're in a Southern Baptist thing and they're yeah. really encouraging us to think for ourselves about what the Bible does say. Good. Kind of kind of conclude to some of these ideas. And one guy propose it and i won't say name or anything because this could just be some random wild thought that he had but i just thought it was very like you know i don't know if i believe that but i find it amusing yeah. um <laughs> he's like god is sort of like a time lord from doctor who you know they yeah. they know so much of what's going to happen in the future that you know the doctor can snap his fingers and the door closed because he knows the chain of events that will eventually cause that to happen yes rather yeah. than he traveled ahead of time and then closed the door <laughs> Yeah. And I'm like, hmm, I like that idea. It's very amusing. <laughs> can I can I get technical just for a second with you? Absolutely. All? That's fun. Um, all right. In the debates amongst philosophical theologians like myself, there are two camps that are fairly close in the minds of many people. But amongst specialists, they're very different. <laughs> One approach is sometimes called Molinism. It's kind of a more classic Arminian and mm -hmm. leading voices that your people here on this podcast know, like William Lane Craig or Alvin Plantinga, they're Molinists. Mm -hmm. They think 
that God at one time created the world out of nothing and chose the best among all possible worlds. And because God looked at all the possible worlds there were and chose the best one, God can know with absolute certainty everything that's going to happen in that time sequence, even though once God created the world, God is now moving through time with the world. Mm. That's not open and relational theology. Open and relational theology rejects the notion that somehow God knows with absolute certainty everything that's going to happen in the future, because we think that that kind of idea is incompatible with creaturely freedom and makes no sense. There's all kinds of technical language here, Mm -hmm. but I'll just basically say we think the future can't be known because it's not settled, not determined, not fixed. So God can't know it, and we can't either. We can make guesses, Mm -hmm. but that's not the same of knowing it with absolute certainty. For those who have not finished the CW series Supernatural, Molinism might just be a spoiler for the last season. <laughs> okay. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> um, so, so I did want to ask, um, talking about your ideas, how you view God as primarily relational love, all this kind of stuff. Who have you found is most drawn to this kind of theology, and why do you think it's so appealing for some people? Yeah. In my book, Open and Relational Theology, an Introduction to Life-Changing Ideas, I set out about 10 reasons why people are drawn to open and relational theology. Those have to do with people's love of science, people's understanding of scripture, at least a particular reading of scripture, people who wrestle with the questions of free will, God's grace and the relationship between the two, people who follow their own moral intuitions and think those intuitions should tell us something true about God, et cetera, et cetera. So there's lots of reasons. But I think in terms of if we kind of narrowed it down more to my particular view that God can't prevent evil, which is one form of open and relational theology, not the only form, um, the kind of people who are uh, attracted to the God can't view typically fall in three categories. One category are people who have endured real suffering, abuse, And they've asked that question that everybody asks, who believes in God at least, why God, why? And to those people, I have an answer. God can't single-handedly stop. Therefore, God's not responsible for the evil you endured. Second group of people are kind of more theological nerds or have existential questions. They've asked these deep questions about God's relation to time or human free will or you know, the problem of evil. And uh, they've seen the answers open to relational theology gives and my God can't proposal provides, and they just find them really attractive. The third group of, of people who are attracted to these views is a little more nebulous, but it's kind of, I'll call this third group of people, the outsiders, the marginalized, those people who don't feel like they fit. And Those people look at the way the world works, and especially the fact that they're on the outside, and they think to themselves, okay, um, why Mm -hmm. am I in the position I'm in? Did God put me here? Is this God's fault? Or is it the case that God can't control the culture, the society, the environment? And the latter sounds much more um, plausible. So there you go. Three big reasons. Yeah. I... um. I, I don't attach truth value to appeal necessarily, but I will say I, I feel like your view is probably more appealing than than mine for a lot of people just because, you know, I, I do believe in this sense of God being able to interact and change events. You know, growing up Pentecostal, I've seen, you know, God heal yes. broken bones, that kind of stuff. And I'm like, I think for me, I've gotten to this place where I just have to sit in the mystery of why does God heal some people and not others? I have no idea. Whereas I think your answer of God can't, I can see where that's a lot more appealing to people of God is love and he just can't. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, when I speak at conventions or universities or wherever, there's a good number of people who will come up to me afterwards and they'll say, what you say just makes better sense than anything I've heard. In fact, some will say, (laughs) I've always kind of thought or believed what you said, but no one's really articulated in the way you do. And so I think Mm -hmm. 
the ideas of open and relational theology fit our deep intuitions, but I readily admit they do not fit the way a lot of people have been taught about God in Sunday school or even in seminaries. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of the people with some of these different ideas like like this often, I, I feel like they have a harder time finding one another in community and stuff. You know, too yes. often all your churches have different beliefs than that. So it's kind of a, that's something that I, I've seen both sides of, you know, I've seen, um, I, w- I went to Trip Fuller's theology camp and I, and I saw oh, all these good. people who are, who are kind of, I don't want to say misfits because that sounds derogatory, but you know, who don't yeah. fit into the theological mainstream. And it was just something beautiful seeing that fellowship and people being able to be there for one another. And I've also seen the ugly part of, you know, churches that maybe even I would like who kind of treat people who think differently terribly sometimes. And I'm like, oh, yeah. you know, just because you disagree, that doesn't negate all of these things you say you believe about the Bible and loving people and <laughs> God being relational. Like all of that stuff is still true, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. I would say, uh, again, this is, I, I want to make sure you don't feel like I'm attacking you from given what you just said. But no, I, not at all. <laughs> I would say that there is a group of people who have, we'll call it a traditional or conservative view of God. Yeah. And that functions for them for a while. And then they start having questions. They might find internal inconsistencies, or it might not fit the world they live in, or mm-hmm. they might endure abuse, tragedy, miscarriage, something like that. And mm-hmm. they have questions. And then they don't know what to do. Some mm-hmm. of them keep it all hidden inside and continue to go to the same communities that are conservative and they just kind of grin and bear it and they don't tell anybody. Mm -hmm. Other people decide, you know what? I can't live like this. Something's wrong here. Some of them become atheists or at least marginal Christians. They no longer are part of a community. And another group of them become more progressive Christians, but they are progressive Christians with a capital M mystery card. They don't want to think about the details of their theology. They just want to pull the mystery card whenever a tough question comes up. I've been Mm -hmm. to these churches. They all talk about loving one another and all that sort of stuff. But you ask them a hard question about theology, and everybody just calls it mystery. I think Mm -hmm. open and relational theology provides an intellectually sophisticated, robust way thinking about God that fits far better with Scripture than most people realize. but it gives real answers to those tough questions so many of us are asking. Could you, I'm putting you on the spot, sorry. Okay, uh, could you point to one of the places in the scripture, you mentioned there's a lot of places in the scripture that kind of support this idea. Could you point to one place that you think maybe is the, I don't know, the best or the most obvious that kind of supports your view of God and theology? Oh man, the whole almost the whole Bible fits my. Is there a, <laughs> yeah, is there a yeah. particular issue in, in that you want me to highlight? Um, I, I think the big difference that a lot of people have with with open theology is the God can't or God being limited to time kind of stuff. Gotcha. So is there? Okay. All right. Well, I see those as two different issues. Let me start okay. with the God can't, and let me make a really bold claim. Fun. There's no passage in the entire Bible that explicitly says God controlled others such that creation had no impact, influence, or power. From the creation of the world, to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, to the resurrection of Jesus, to every miracle that's in Scripture, to the eschatological fulfillment, none of them explicitly say an omnipotent God controlled the scenario and there were no creaturely contributions. Most of them will identify creaturely contributions. Occasionally, only God's action is mentioned, but none of them have this strong God alone did it kind of claim. Mm -hmm. So when I read the Bible, I think, well, of course, this fits nicely with a God can't be. (laughs) What what happens is most of us come to the Bible with, well, we all come to the Bible with assumptions, right? That's just the way life is. And one of the deepest, most fundamental assumptions, even though it's not in the Bible, is that God is omnipotent, that God either controls everything or could control if God wanted to. And especially if you have that latter one, that God could control if God wanted to, 
you'll find a passage of scripture that says God did X. God rescued the Mm -hmm. Israelites from Pharaoh. God raised Jesus from the dead. God, whatever. And then what people will do is they'll say, oh, God did this. God must have done it all alone. It must have been an act of control. The text doesn't say that, but we assume that given our fundamental default of divine Mm -hmm. omnipotence. But I'm Um, proposing that every passage of Scripture either supports the notion that creatures contribute or at least doesn't require God to control. Okay. Real quick then, um, just to get specific with it, because I'm just curious. Good. Good. And genuinely curious. You know, I'm – Yes. I hope you know I'm not trying to do any gotcha kind no, of things. No, I just want to know. I want to understand. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, the times where it says God spoke through the donkey or God spoke through this person or that person or whatever, when God's speaking through someone in the Bible, how how do you view that? Awesome question. Yes. So what someone like me does is I say, well, the creatures cooperated with God. The donkey cooperated with God. Or mm-hmm. – if it's water or natural things like that, we'll I'll say the conditions of creation were conducive for the kind of miracle God wanted. And this hmm. is so helpful because given you have a Pentecostal background and I do too, mm-hmm. we both know that sometimes miracles happen, but most of the time they don't. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, how yeah. many times <laughs> have you prayed for someone and they didn't get better? For me, it's a whole lot more often than when they did get better. Right. Yeah. So if you have a theology that says God can't single handedly heal people, that there has to be some cooperation at the cellular level, the muscle level, or if there's no uh, entities uh, capable Mm -hmm. of cooperating, the conditions of the body must be conducive for this healing. Then all of a Mm -hmm. sudden you don't have to play that big, big mystery card when people aren't healed. We don't have to say, well, it's their sin or God's got a better plan for them or whatever. We can say God wants to heal, but the conditions of their body or their environment or whatever aren't conducive or there's not some kind of cooperative mm-hmm. cooperation involved. Interesting. I think too, and for the audience sake, <laughs> just because I can see this and I'm making the example does not mean that I am preaching this necessarily. <laughs> I am thinking this through with Dr. Ord. Um, <laughs> I was in an accident, a pretty bad accident about five years ago now where I, I should have died. All accounts say should have been dead. Yeah. Uh, the, the lawyer of the other guy said it was a miracle that I lived. So that's, that was my standard of, you know, when the other guy's lawyer is saying that that's pretty <laughs> bad. <laughs> yeah. And it was funny is also paired with that. There, there were things where some of the same people said it was a miracle. You know, I had one doctor said, well, if you hadn't been on the ketogenic diet for the last year, your muscles wouldn't have repaired like this. It wouldn't have happened. Um, and you know, there were just a lot of little details with that. So I don't think saying those things contributed negates the fact that it was a miracle. Right. Yeah. Oh, I so 100% agree. I believe in miracles. <laughs> I just don't think miracles require God's omnipotent interruption of natural cause of events. I think miracles are God's activity and creaturely cooperation in unusual, surprisingly good ways. So I'm a big believer of, of miracles. I just think <laughs> people have defined miracles. So would you say the biggest pushback you get to your theology and some of your work is then this idea of God can't in time, or is there something else that you get pushback more on? Yeah, probably the biggest one is, oh, your God's a wimp. Your God's a weakling. <laughs> if, you know, if, if your God yeah. can't control, then, you know, is that even God at all? Mm. Um, and I respond to those people, well, the God I believe in is the most powerful being in the universe, the God I believe in created and has everlastingly been creating, the God I believe in sustains mm-hmm. everything and is the source of all goodness, beauty, etc. It's just that I don't think God is omnipotent or controlling. And um, so I, you know, I believe in God and this God is strong, just not a controlling kind of God. But if you're like me and you think <laughs> love is inherently uncontrolling and you think God is love, it, it makes total sense for God not to be controlling. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another criticism I get, this one's more from scholars than the average person. They'll yeah. say, uh, oh, you just make God in your image. You're, mm. you're 
you're reducing, you're anthropomorphizing God. You're making God just a bigger version of yourself. And um, I think theology has to do some anthropomorphic moves. If you have a God who is entirely, utterly unlike creatures, then you can't talk about that God ever. It's not the God described in most of Scripture. So the trick is to find things you think are similar between God and creation and things that are different, or to use the more technical language, the way God is transcendent and the way God is imminent. And open and yeah. relational theology uh, has some imminent aspects that other theologies don't have. Yeah, that is one thing that I um, personally I, I find tragic, especially you know, especially as someone who grew up in a gospel. Um, I feel like a lot of the imminency, I don't think that's a word, but today it is, of God, <laughs> like gets overlooked in a lot of our theology today. Yeah. We, we kind of focus only on the transcendent part. And I, I do think it's both. Like, I definitely agree with that. Um, I think it's funny when, yeah. when someone who overemphasizes transcendence will say something like, oh, you're just making God, you're just making God in your own image. And that makes God mad. And I think to myself, <laughs> okay, if God is mad, that's similar to how we can be mad. So that's an imminence thing, right? <laughs> so yeah. we're both <laughs> thinking God has some similarities between us and God. The question is, what are those similarities? Do they make sense? How do they fit with scripture? How do they fit with reason, et cetera? Yeah. And if you really want to make somebody upset, point out that uh, what they just did by saying that makes God mad was clearly them making God in their image because they're mad right, right now. <laughs> exactly. That's <laughs> anyway. my point. Yeah. <laughs> That's my point. <laughs> so so our, our show is chiefly about Christian unity. So I, I have to ask a couple questions with Good. some of this now that we kind of got a better grip, I think, on um, what you're saying. Where yeah. do you think you come the closest to agreeing with some of your more conservative theological I don't want to say opposites, partners. Let's say no. partners. <laughs> you know what's weird is that as much as today we've talked about how my views are different from, we'll call it traditional views, yeah. in some context, I sound traditional compared to the alternatives. You know, yeah. I actually believe <laughs> Absolutely. I actually believe a God exists. There's some there are some religious frameworks who don't have a room for God. I think mm -hmm. this God is a spirit, incorporeal, to use the classic language. I think mm -hmm. this God knows everything that can be known. Now, I have a difference of opinion on what's knowable, but still, God's omniscient. I think God is perfectly loving. There's mm -hmm. a lot of things about my view of God that at least on a first blush will sound similar to what other people think about God. So um, if you start from that perspective, I'm not so weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. And that's uh, I think it's always important to point out our similarities because too often we focus on the differences, which are important. If we're going to yeah. come into unity, I don't think we do away with differences or ignore them. Yeah. But you, know, you got to focus on a little bit of both. Um, so, so when we're questioning... Guys, omnipotence. You, you've brought that up quite a bit. Yeah. You you have uh, another word for what you think God's power is, mm. and you have another book coming up that kind of addresses some of that, right? Could you unpack yes. a little bit of that? Thank you for asking. The book I'm currently writing is called "The Death of Omnipotence and the mm -hmm. Birth of Amnipotence." Amnipotence is a word I mm -hmm. coined. A M I is the Latin for ami or love. And then, of course, potence is power. So yeah, I'm I was saying, afraid to try and say it because <laughs> I'm yeah. like, I'm just going to say omnipotence again. I, I can't do it. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm saying we should get rid of the classic notion of omnipotence and replace it with amnipotence, which is the power of love. It's putting love first when we think about God's power. And the book I'm currently writing has a whole chapter on why the Bible does not support omnipotence. In fact, even the English words almighty that many of your readers will find in Scripture come mm -hmm. from Greek and Hebrew words that do not mean almighty, do not mean omnipotence. So mm -hmm. one whole chapter is how the Bible doesn't support that. Another chapter is how philosophically theologians throughout history have always had to qualify omnipotence and say, well, God is omnipotence, but God can't make two plus two equals seven, but God can't make a rock so big, God can't lift it, but God can't control free will creatures, but yada, yada, yada. 
And then, of course, the big problem with omnipotence is the problem of evil we've been talking about. So what I'm doing is proposing an alternative, a view of God's power that says God really exists, really acts, really exerts powerful influence throughout all the universe. But because God is first and foremost loving, God simply can't control anyone or anything. Mm, man, that is going to be a fun book. It's <laughs> <That's, laughs> yeah. one of those things where I... um. <laughs> Whether I agree or not, I love reading other books. In fact, to tell on myself, I love reading books I disagree with even more than Good. stuff that's like exactly what I believe. Yeah, uh, I even I follow a few atheist podcasts because I'm like, this is fascinating stuff. Yeah, yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah, but um, <laughs> yeah. So I. Also, I, I love the word. Oh, uh, good. Am, amipotence? Yeah, amipotence. Uh, amipotence. Amipotence. Okay. Yeah. Amipotence. Oh, man, if I was better at speaking, it would be great. Visually, <laughs> when I first saw it visually, I was like, man, that's clever. That's good. Uh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people have been attracted to it. So I hope it, mm -hmm. it gains some traction. Yeah. Um. So what... <laughs> What do you think would be the most helpful advice that you could give to those who fall more on your side of theology and kind of thinking when they're having to deal with Christians who maybe believe a little bit more conservative like myself or, you know, I think most conservative Christians believe more conservative than me. But so do everyone else. Everyone else seems to think that they're in the middle. So I don't want to claim it too much. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I think my advice would be. And I guess this wouldn't be advice for everybody, but it'd be advice for lots of people. Think like I do. And that advice would be, remember who you used to be. Because I was a fundamentalist at one time. Mm -hmm. I believed the Bible was inerrant. I was a street evangelist. I was a part of Campus Crusade for Christ. Um, I used the Bible as my sword to defeat my apologetic foes. And I was doing it believing that people's ultimate destiny rested on whether or not they said the sinner's prayer. My motives were good, at least most of the time. Mm -hmm. And um, I want to tell my people who think like me, folks who are maybe more conservative or traditional in their views, um, most of them, their motives are good. We might disagree with them on mm -hmm. the particulars, but uh, remember who you used to be and um, empathize with mm. that those who think differently do you mind if i ask what what caused you to go from the crusaders of christ kind of christian to the uh to where you are today is there any particular event yeah it was I, i'm a weirdo for me it was the intellectual adventure mm -hmm. um yeah i was hardcore evangelist and uh when you're a hardcore evangelist and you memorize scripture and you do all that sort of stuff because you think people's eternal destiny is on the line. You rarely meet someone who takes these issues as seriously as you do. And mm -hmm. that means you can out-argue 99.9% .9 of the people on the street. Yep. But I took a course in philosophy of religion and read the history's greatest atheists and agnostics and people of other religious traditions. Mm -hmm. And because I took the intellectual adventure seriously, I had to admit that they had really good arguments and that my arguments for belief in God weren't strong. And so for a while, I was an atheist. Huh. I, I remember coming to pick up my fiance, who's now my wife, and her getting <laughs> in the car and me turning to her and saying, I just can't believe <laughs> And we were both studying oh, for ministry. And <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> yeah. That's rough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. I eventually came back to belief in God primarily for two reasons. One, I I didn't think life could have ultimate if there wasn't some kind of ground of meaning that most people call God. Yeah. And secondly, I knew I had these deep intuitions about love, that in some sense, love was the answer, that we ought to be loving people, not just me, but everybody. And I couldn't have a fundamental basis for that love if there wasn't this ultimate lover that most mm -hmm. people call God. And then building from those two things, I started to reconstruct my theology. And that's what got me. I, I feel like my views have like the ones that have changed, like half of them was because of experience. And then half yeah. of them was like more of that intellectual stuff. Um, I don't know if you know oh, Trimper Longman. Yes, um, I do. Ah, 
great guy. We we love him. He on our podcast actually mentioned that he was um, egalitarian and not complimentary. Okay. And I was like, well, I respect this guy, and I think complimentary is the only thing that's ever made sense. So I had to like yeah. dig through some of his books and read it, and I'm like. Oh man, he's right. <laughs> I was like, oh, I guess I gotta. And it's so hard to like just change your belief. Like it still takes time, but you're like, no, nope, yeah, but that I was, he's correct. People, <laughs> I admire people who can change their views. I mean, in in it's our day, hard, yeah. in our day, people want leaders or scholars to have one view and keep it forever. But that's not healthy. Like that's not real life, right? Yeah. Real life is that if you're growing, maturing, you have a change of mind. You might not change everything you think, but growth means some change. And so I admire people who are brave enough to come out and say, yep, I no longer think what I used to think. <laughs> now think this. Oh, yeah. I um, So regardless of what anyone thinks of the person or the beliefs, uh, I think the most obvious example for me was when Barack Obama changed his stance on LGBT issues. Mm, yeah, yeah. And it was so funny how many people are like, oh, he's such a hypocrite. He said he would never blot. I'm like, yeah, no, he just changed his mind. <laughs> like, yeah, like, that's just yeah. something that people do, especially intelligent people. You yeah. know, like, you don't have to agree with him or think he's a good person. But to say he was being a hypocrite there just didn't really make sense. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so we're going to flip this a little bit. For the more conservative, you know, Baptist, Pentecostal, Calvinist, whatever kind of believer who listens to our show, who's been you know, I don't know, grinding their teeth <laughs> this whole time. <laughs> I, don't know what, I don't know what they're what doing. This guy oh, doing? <laughs> what do you think is the most important thing you could say directly to that person if you had the chance to speak just into their life where they're at right now? It's hard to do without coming across as condescending. Yeah, isn't it? Or, you know, like, um, here, let me tell you the right way. <laughs> so um, yeah. maybe what I'll do is be personal. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll, I'll be testimonial. What inclines me to have the ideas that I've been proposing the last hour or so is my fundamental desire to live a life of love and to have intellectually consistent ideas about God reality that align mm -hmm. with that desire to love. It's that desire to love that prompts me to rethink God's power, for instance. It prompts me to rethink God's impassibility and a lot of other issues. So maybe I'm wrong about these things and maybe you don't agree with me, <laughs> but my motive is the first and great and second greatest commandments, to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love my neighbor as myself. Amen and hallelujah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. I guess we'll just end there. No, um, I, I did want to to ask. We've mentioned uh, God Can't, um, your upcoming book that I forgot the name of. And <laughs> and uh, has it has it been named yet? Yeah. The upcoming book is The Death of Omnipotence. Oh, yeah. I knew that. Man. And Birth of Omnipotence. Yeah, that's yeah. all right. And uh, Open and Relational Theology was the, was the other book. Um, and that kind of just explains your views of what is Open and Relational Theology and why you believe it. Um, we, we were talking a little bit before of some, some stuff you were going to be able to give me. But uh, just for anybody, where can they find your books and follow your work? What's the easiest place to go to? The easiest place to find my books is Amazon. I mean, it's on other booksellers as well, yeah. but uh, just look at my last name. It's kind of a strange last name, O-O-R-D, Thomas J. Ord, and you'll find 30 plus books, but mm -hmm. those ones that you mentioned. Um, also, should I tell folks what I mentioned at the start of the show? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Uh, I have two offers. The first offer is for absolutely everybody who's listening, and that is uh, I'm going to send a uh, link to Joshua that allows, uh, that, that provides you a 200 plus page ebook from mm -hmm. selections of five of my best selling books, chapters from God can't open relational theology, pluriform love, the uncontrolling love of God. And I forgot, the, Oh, God can't question and answers. And, mm -hmm. uh, if you want that, you basically, you're giving me your email to be added to my newsletter and you'll get this 200 plus, uh, page book. Yeah, and I will um, I'll link it in the show notes. I'll put it on the Facebook group, and we have um, I'm sure our, our listeners know we have a the whole church reading list. So I'll put it on there too for 
all of the places for people to find. Awesome. I think people would really like that. It's a, oh, yeah. again, it's, it's, uh, it, there's some of the selections are aimed at a wide audience. So like your grandma could read it and understand it. Other <laughs> yeah. selections are aimed more at academic and scholarly type. So you can just pick and choose what you like. The second thing fun. I have to provide is uh, 10 codes and links to audiobooks on Spotify of my book, Open and Relational Theology, An Introduction to Life-Changing Ideas. And I'll give those mm -hmm. 10 codes and links to you, Josh, and you can dispense them as however you see fit. Oh, yeah. I will. Um, first, it will be on the Patreon. So if you're a patron, you'll have access to those. Um, and then what our patrons do not use, I'm going to I'll do a giveaway on Facebook. So be looking for some kind of raffle or something. We'll see. We'll see. But be looking for it, guys. Um, uh, so one thing we do ask every guest is if you had to recommend a single tangible action, something that listeners can stop right now and go do that would help better maintain the unity of the church, what would it be? Go to social media and in two sentences, apologize for some stupid thing you said on social media in the last year or two. Huh. Man, that was real practical. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> and hard, probably. So, man, yeah. <laughs> so if everybody listening to this is uh, brave enough to do that, <laughs> what what would change? What would be the ramifications of that? Well, I think when people humble themselves to admit that they're wrong, that mm -hmm. makes people, other people, more likely to admit they might be wrong about something. And it lowers the temperature of conversations significantly it provides a, a dose of humility hmm. yeah that is some powerful stuff so now's the thing we do before we start wrapping we do a god moment and it's just where we share something god's been doing with us recently blessing challenge whatever you want it to be really doesn't particularly matter um mine mine i'm, I'm gonna go with a blessing um and it was all of the last sunday um it, it was Sunday after Epiphany, so we're talking about baptism. Um, and there was a song. I don't remember what it was, but it was so funny. Um, right now, I'm attending a Lutheran church. Grew up Pentecostal. And it was a very Pentecostal hymn. And it was so funny that people were going to be like, man, you you really like that? I was like, oh, I'm I'm still Pentecostal at heart. So I love it. Good for so you. Yeah, <laughs> that was a huge blessing. Um, and then I was able to meet up with some old college friends at the same day in Matthews. And we kind of had a pretty deep spiritual talk. So I feel like we were doing church in that moment, playing cards. And for those who know me, I got to see the seaboard train twice while I was there. And that's just, just wild. And I, and the one time it came was at such a perfect time. I got a great picture of it and it was just a huge blessing. That was whole day, the whole day. <laughs> um, Dr. Ord, did you have anything that uh, God's been up to with you recently? Well, I'll be very vulnerable. Um, today's a Monday. Yesterday in church, before church, I was talking mm -hmm. with someone about the holidays. And um, I mentioned that my wife, who's my best friend, mm -hmm. was preoccupied with lots of other things. And I realized, I guess I've already, already knew this, but I, I realized in a deeper way that I need to have more deep friendships in my life. My wife mm. kind of functions as my primary friend, and then I don't have yeah. very many close seconds. And um, I need to develop some additional close friendships. So how's that for being? Yeah, that's a God moment because I think God uh, is calling me to that. Yeah, I uh, I definitely get that. Yeah, <laughs> it's so easy to just have your spouse be your your friend, and I was like, ah, just no, that's one I live with. I live with my friend. It's good. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I definitely get that. That's a, it's a good challenge. Um, guys, thank you all so much for listening this far. Please do us the favor of sharing it with a friend or an enemy, or perhaps even a cousin as TJ would like you to know. He, he loves telling you that I love seconding it. We prefer you share it with cousins. So just, you know, prioritize that. Um, again, make sure you're uh, you're ready for this convention we have coming up the every tribe denomination in tongue convention we will be having uh, preachers from several different denominations all answering the same question in sermon and then discussing how they answered it differently the next day something i'm really excited for to see how different people from different traditions answer the question of do you experience god more 
in relation or in your prayer closet. So it'll be fun. Fun to hear all the answers to that. Um, check out our other show at systematicgeekology.org. We just geek out and talk about where we see God in our favorite nerdy stuff. Again, hope you enjoyed the show. Come back next week. We will be speaking with Andrew Fouts, host of the Ministry Misfits podcast. After that, we will be speaking with Dr. Jennifer Bashaw, author of Scapegoats, The Gospel Through the Eyes of the Victims. Awesome lady, by the way. Um, then we're going to be doing an interview with Andrew Gilsmith. This will also be part of our other show, Systematic Geekology. Um, he is the author of Our Lady of the Artelex, which is a Catholic sci-fi novel. Lots of fun. And finally, at the end of season one, Francis Chan will be joining us as soon as he is made aware of it and agrees, which will happen eventually. Thank you for listening to the Whole Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, you can always sponsor our show for $3 a month at patreon.com forward slash the whole church podcast. Please come back next week where we'll be doing an interview with Andrew Fouts of the Ministry Misfits.